I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thank you, Ken, and I do enjoy our time each week. During these sessions together, you've talked on several occasions about purchase proposals, and you've actually gone into quite some depth. However, I thought it might be useful to step back for a moment and explore how to get the very most out of the proposal you you submit for each property. Hmm. Well, Ken, the proposal is an interesting tool in your bag of tricks. And I'm a great believer in formalising the proposals, not... A lot of people do it, make put in verbal offers or maybe a, a scrappy-looking email. You've got to let the vendor know that you are serious. And the beauty of formalising it in a, a proper letter, which might be attached to a covering email, is that by doing that, the selling agent is by law obliged to pass that on to the vendor, his client. Now, particularly if the letter is at least a page, probably maybe two or three pages long, there's no excuse for just doing a quick summary of the letter, either verbally or in an email. And you've got to remember, most selling agents are lazy. And it's a lot easier for them if you put a a well-structured letter together, then he or she... It's just too easy for them that all they've got to do is just pass it on to their client. And that's exactly what you want because you don't want them interpreting your proposal. If it's properly structured, it is effectively a well-argued submission and also it elevates you above the other offers which, as I said, Many will be verbal. At best, they will be a badly formatted email. And therefore, you come across as being a serious contender. I mean, you've got to remember everyone's busy. So what you need to do is grab their attention, but not in a a gimmicky or garish way, just so that you demonstrate that you're serious and you know exactly what you're talking about. And obviously that starts with understanding the basic terminology such as yield, cap rate, while that's W-A-L-E, which is the weighted average lease expiry, capex, capital expenditure, so that in talking to the agent and or the vendor, if you do, you are familiar with and can use appropriately the terminology. Now, we've started to cover that in various podcasts and we'll do a bit more of the terminology, but that's important. So you have to grab and hold their attention and let them know that you are serious. Okay, we now have the vendor or their agent's attention. So what's next? Well, you started by asking specifically about the proposal, but maybe before 
you submit the proposal, what you will have done is to quickly run some numbers. Now, they may not be the final analysis, but just enough to know that the property is worth pursuing. Now, we've talked before about, when submitting an offer, the terminology of bracketing. In other words, you need to make an assessment, either by yourself or with, with help, of what is a realistic market price. So therefore, if they are 5% above that, your offer will logically be 5% below that. So that brackets the anticipated ending up point in the middle. So that enables you to get a proposal off fairly quickly. Because understand, until you sign a contract, you are not bound. So even if, say, they, some unknown has accepted your offer and even if they wrote back and told you they accepted your offer, you, until you sign the contract, are not legally bound. So there's no harm in putting an offer in, but there's a lot to be gained, as I said, in, in establishing your credentials and creating the, the understanding or perception with the vendor that you are a serious contender. So you'll do the numbers quickly, identify, and this may happen after you put the first proposal in, identify the opportunities you have to add value to the property because initially you may not have observed something and that may assist you in in being able to pay slightly more for the property to do the deal if you uncover or discern that there are ways that you can add value that maybe other people haven't seen. And, you know, all of this ought to be backed up by getting a value as opinion, as you know, as to a figure up to which he or she would be prepared to support. Now, that won't necessarily be a formal valuation, but based on their knowledge of the market, you'll give them details of the property through the information memorandum, they should be able to give you a a figure, if not a range, within which they would be comfortable to support that valuation. So, in essence, that surrounds the proposal. And the way I structure proposals, as I think you've started to realise, it's done in a way to uncover the vendor's motivation. In other words, depending on their response, we know whether they are cavalier, whether they are keen to do a deal, whether they are just genuine business people and prepared to work with you to arrive at a proposal that allows everyone to have a win-win situation. So the very first offer is designed to do multiple things. Create the image in their eyes of you as a serious contender, but also elicit from them a response that will tell you very quickly how keen they are to do a deal. And it's not overly complicated, but I think particularly those in my mentor group have got copies of the sort of template I use for proposals, both the simple for low-value property and the more complicated one where you would also undertake a due diligence 
study as part of your offer. At this point, are you now in a position to begin formalising things with the vendor? Yes, this is at this point you may have or are about to submit your proposal and I always like to include three to five variables that will be under negotiation, which you know may include the, the size of the initial deposit, the, certainly the price, the settlement terms, the due diligence period, if that's what you're including, which would be more for properties in the sort of million-dollar-plus category. And the due diligence clause that I have or have designed with the help of um, my legal team, provides you with a, effectively a walk-away clause. So yes, it, it goes into considerable detail of everything you're going to do, but there's a sort of throwaway line there that says, or anything else considered relevant to the purchase. So effectively, you could you could drive a horse and cart through it. It gives you absolute control. But the secret in, in including that in your initial proposal is that every vendor is going to look at the price, they're going to look at the deposit, they're going to look at the settlement terms. And I want to take, with the due diligence, I want to take their focus away just on price. So you've got all these variables, but they tend not to dwell on the due diligence, they look at it and say, oh yeah, and, and it's done in a way they look through and say, I've got to provide this, you know, plans, permits also, and they say, yeah, that's fair enough. If they don't have them, their lawyer or their managing agent will, so they don't really see that as too much of an issue. I mean, if you're you're starting out asking for 21 business days, which I do for the due diligence period, they may want to cut that back to 10 or 14 days, but you know, that's more than enough time to, to carry out the inspection and, and get a, a preliminary report back as to the physical well-being of the building. So, yeah, that's when you do. You, you submit your uh, written proposal and, as I said, it's there to serve a multiple purposes and let you know how serious the vendor is going forward. Now, it may be that your initial response makes it clear that you should drop the property because you're just not going to get to first base. But it enables you to extract that vital information as to the motivation of the vendor. This negotiating phase could clearly take some time. Is there anything else you should be doing as well? Well, this is probably where I would be doing your in-depth financial analysis. I mean, you've got your initial response. You're going to be in for a bit of a protracted negotiation, and that's good too because, I mean, you don't want to rush to settle it. And if you're going to get the vendor down on price, you've got to get them down in bite-sized pieces because at the end of the day, they have to walk away feeling that they have extracted from you the best possible price. So, you know, there's a definite skill in, in how to increase your figure incrementally, but you've got to do your in-depth analysis because that'll tell you the precise figure to which you can go to and, and that may well be 
um, above or below the valuous figure. Obviously, the, the valuous figure puts a cap on it, but you might find that when you do your analysis, you can actually afford to pay more when you do your after-tax projected cash flow, which is great because it means you're already building in value. So you'll do your analysis based on nearby evidence. I mean, is the price and the current rental in line with market levels? Also, are you making the valid assumptions when it comes to your number crunching software? I mean, the software is only as good as the information that you provide for it or to it. So, yes, you'll have factual information, but you still have to make assumptions as to what your cap rate will be at the point when you sell the property. Things like rental escalations are generally built in automatically, but there may be a market review during the period you're analysing. So you might have to make an estimate of that. If you're not sure what it's going to be, maybe just leave it the same as the annual increment going through. But with the software I use, there are 18 different variables. And you need to make sure that you're not being overly optimistic. It's better to be conservative, not overly conservative, but realistically conservative, so that you don't overcommit yourself. And, I mean, always allow a safety margin in your figures. You know, if if you you realise there's a, a renovation that's got to be done going forward, it might be 12 months out because there's a lease expiring or whatever it is, you know, make a realistic estimate of what that's going to cost. Allow for fees. If you need an architect involved, you know, contingency should something go wrong. And are there any potential setbacks, you know? And also, as we said, I think, earlier, that, you know, does it fit, I think it was last week, does it fit within your existing longer-term strategy? Because this is, it's important. I mean, you're not buying, you're not accumulating property, you're building a portfolio. And a portfolio has to make sense. So... As I said, you know, it's it's not going to happen overnight, the concluding it after your first proposal. Sometimes it can happen in a week. Sometimes it takes three weeks. But so long as you're making progress, that's the main thing. And it's not that you're dragging the chain. It may be legitimately that the vendor happens to be overseas or there are more than one vendor involved and, and reach getting the two or three together is... Uh, is difficult. Maybe one has an idea of of the price level that differs from the other, and, and they're arguing among themselves. But in that case, your your best advocate is going to be the selling agent because he or she wants to do the deal. You know that. And the number of deals I've put together by getting some feedback from the selling agent, you know, if you can tweak this to so and so, I think I can get that. It's just invaluable, some of that information. So, yeah, that's what goes on during that period. Assuming you're happy with the financial analysis, where do you go from here? Well, you know, if you're happy with your financial analysis, the process is you finalise the commercial terms. As I said, you will have already
already put an initial proposal. Subsequent discussions may be verbal. Uh, I would prefer it's at least done by email. I wouldn't keep repeating the detailed formal proposal. Just massage the various terms, the, the price, the settlement date, the amount of deposit up front, the due diligence period that's involved, and maybe if you've got other variables, that's great. Massage them exchanging emails, so you've got a, a paper trail, as it were. However, once you do finally reach agreement, I would then revert back to the formal proposal that you used before. And the reason for that is that, and I cannot tell you how many times it has been useful, is that you bring everything together that may have been discussed over a one, two or three week period and condense it into the one document so that all the discussions are there. And what I generally do is is highlight the final terms, the, the key issues, which have varied from the original proposal. I generally highlight them in red so they can quickly jump through that and find the three, four or five items under discussion and confirm that, yes, that's exactly what I've agreed. And that tells them that the balance or the 95% of the document hasn't altered. It's only these four or five items that, that have changed. So they can quickly zero in on that and I just get them to sign off on the end. This agreed sign for and on behalf of the vendor accepting this as the basis of the deal going forward. Now, mentally that's, as I said, it's not legally binding on you or the vendor, but mentally the vendor feels the deal is done. Now, that's good. But the real reason is when he instructs the solicitor, every solicitor wants to grandstand and justify their position. But invariably, the other solicitor will want to try and come up with a contract that doesn't accord with the commercial terms. So the beauty with having that signed off by the vendor is that I give that to my client's solicitor and if the other solicitor arcs up, we simply send it to him. So I'm sorry, here is the deal that's been done. So now he looks like a fool in front of his client and we also tell the selling agent that he's been difficult. So the selling agent talks to the vendor, the vendor talks to the solicitor and says, listen, don't you stuff this deal up. We've already agreed these terms. Understand you're trying to do the right thing by me, but I'm happy with what we've agreed with. Just do the deal. And as I said, I cannot tell you over the last 40 or 5 years how many times I have been so glad I've had that executed. And it was more me being tidy for completeness, but the secondary benefit is far out weighed anything else I've done. So I guess that pretty much wraps it up then. Yeah, pretty much that wraps it up. However, don't wait till settlement to to finalise your finance or get any quotes for upgrading or getting in place any new tenancy agreements. Just because you haven't settled doesn't mean well, certainly the finance, you've got to get onto that. Now, if you've got a due diligence period, obviously you're not going to instruct the valuer 
to do the evaluation on your behalf before the due diligence period is up. But things like quotes for upgrading, I mean, <clears throat> if you know the upgrading is going to be done straight away, well, get your quotes so that the day you settle, the builders can go in the next day. You don't want to have metres ticking over of finance and, and so forth, and also every day that it's sitting there empty, you're losing rent. And the same with the tenancy arrangements. I mean, it may be that you bought a property that's got three or four tenancies, one of which is vacant. Well, you can appoint an agent to start looking. So if it's a 60-day settlement, it may well be that they're able to find a tenant before settlement occurs. Now, the vendor's not going to be upset with that because they get interest from the day that lease starts up until settlement. However, let's say the deal is that there's a rent-free period. Well, you may as well have the rent-free period ticking over during the settlement period before you actually have to outlay any money. So it may be within a month they find a tenant, so it's 30 days till settlement, but it's a, it's a two-month rent-free. So one month the vendor wears, which they weren't getting rent anyway, so it's, it's no loss to them. And you only have to carry 30 days of the rent-free after settlement rather than the full two months. So there's little things that you can do leading up to the settlement period that, that should be kept in mind. Yeah, and, and thank you for rounding that off, It as it all makes sense. Ken, none of this is overly complicated. It, it's simply a process you need to follow in order to safeguard your success. Well, that's been great. And I look forward to catching up with you next week.